0: You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. As you can tell, I am not in my home studio. Uh, Neither am I away from home. I'm right here uh, in Santa Barbara the city where I live, but we've had internet outages at my home. Very boring things to talk about. Very frustrating, but very boring. And so I thought, why not try this and do this remotely with you all? Now, here's the problem. The last time I tried this from this very parking lot uh, where I get a good 5G signal, the last time I tried this, my camera overheated and everything went kablooey i'm gonna hope that the same thing doesn't happen this time but i gotta be honest with you i'm really thinking about i'm really wondering what possibly could go wrong with this uh live uh question and answer time on today october the 6th 2022 there's a lot of things that could go wrong. There could be maintenance workers around me who get very loud. There could be people coming up in this very public parking lot where I'm at and interrupting. Uh, It's potential that the camera could overheat again. I I don't know. We're going to find out together what possibly could go wrong with us today. And we're going to hope that it doesn't. But I tell you, the many, many frustrations I've had And my staff can tell you how frustrated people on our team. My wife can tell you how frustrated I've been with so many of the technical problems involved with us doing these YouTube lives. I, I get back to the whole situation of just trying to be persistent and just trying to power through the difficulties. These are things that we have to do really in any station of life that we find ourselves And so that's what I'm trying to do here for you now. So I'm gonna try to rearrange a few things here as I take a look at the camera and try to figure out exactly how I'd like things to look. Maybe I'm gonna move things just a little bit to the middle here, move the camera a little bit more to the middle and get that steering wheel a little bit more out of the way, raise up just a little bit. Maybe that's a little bit better framing for our time together. Okay, now, our normal pattern here on a Thursday afternoon, and I do want to say I apologize for not being with you the last couple of weeks, but I do want to thank the two excellent friends of mine. They're on the board of Enduring Word who filled in to me. The first week I was gone, we were on a wonderful vacation in Mexico. Uh, We went scuba diving down south of Cancun near Cozumel. We had such a wonderful time, my wife and I scuba diving. We really enjoyed learning how to do that. So uh, that was the first week I was gone. My good friend, Pastor Lance Ralston, filled in with me. And then the second week, another guy who's on the board of our organization, during Word, Chuck Musselwhite, filled in with me. Now, the second week I was gone. Again, I don't mean to get too much into these things because you may or may not have any interest. But the second week I was gone, it was because we had some immigration problems having to do with my wife's Swedish passport and not having her U.S. passport. It was complicated. It would be boring to explain the whole thing for you. But I sure thought I was going to be back home for last week's broadcast, but I was not. We were delayed in Mexico for another couple of days. So here I am with you today. Technical problems. I don't know. Uh, maybe our team could let me know. Devin, Andrea, let me know if it's coming out good because I've got no idea and I can't really get any metrics the way we're going right now. And um, I'm just going to begin with our lead question for today. The lead question for today comes from Aaron. And Aaron sent this via email some uh, weeks ago. And, uh, you know, we, we store these questions up and we get back to them when we can. So here's Aaron's question. From several weeks ago. And listen, I love this question, not just for the question itself, but for the way it thinks behind the question, okay? So, we're just titling this, Will Jesus Return with Angels or Saints? Here's Aaron's question. Referring to Revelation chapter 19, verse 14— Why do some Bible teachers think that the church are those who come with Jesus on white horses? It says armies. If I use the Bible to reference the Bible, it speaks of angels or hosts of heaven that do battle. Even Jesus refers these legions of angels who could fight for him. In the Old Testament, they're referred to as well. What makes many pastors so very assured that it's us riding those white horses? Now, let me say, Aaron, I'm going to get to your question in just a moment, but I love the whole premise of your question. And here's the whole premise. Here's the whole thinking that goes behind your question. It, it basically saying, says who? You, you hear things that pastors say. You hear things that preachers or Bible teachers say. And, and listen, we want to be as that pattern is in the book of Acts, chapter 14, I believe it is, where... Paul was among the Bereans, and they were more noble. Maybe it's chapter 17. Um, they, They were more noble, the Bereans were, because they searched the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And so, Aaron, I think it's wonderful to ask those questions. Hey, pastors say, I've heard preachers say that when Jesus returns, the armies that come with him are going to be the armies of the saints, of God's people. Says who? Because many times when I look in the Bible, it certainly seems that most of the time when it talks about armies associated with God, we're talking about angelic armies. We're not talking about, you know what, folks, I'm feeling my phone there and it's just pretty warm. I'm a little afraid that we're gonna come back. And so I'm gonna make a little adjustment here. And as awkward as it may be for this thing, I think I'm just going to hold it so I can hold it a little bit more out of the glare of the windshield. Again, I'm just touching the rear of my phone here now. And uh, I don't want it to overheat like I did last time. That was such a discouragement when here I am doing a broadcast from here and it just goes out. Okay, anyway, says who? We, we, We say that these... Um, armies are the returning armies of saints, how do we know they're just not angels? And again, Aaron, I think it's an excellent question, and I would say it's all based pretty much just on Jude. Now, there's only one chapter to the book of Jude, so Jude chapter 1, verse 14 and the beginning of verse 15. Now, again, I'm going to read the passage that you referenced to begin with. That's Revelation chapter 19, verse 14, where it says this, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Okay, so here we're told about armies in heaven, um, returning with Jesus, and Aaron's question is great. She hears from pastors all the time talking about the armies are God's people, the saints. How do we know that they're not angelic armies? Well, again, I'm just going to read to you Jude, again, chapter 1, verse 14, and the first bit of verse 15, where it says this. Now, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all. Now, did you notice that, Aaron, there? Jude chapter 14 Uh, Jude chapter 1, I should say, verse 14 and into verse 15, pretty clearly tells us that Jesus is returning with the armies of his saints to execute vengeance. Now, Aaron, you're absolutely right. Most of the time when it talks about the hosts of the Lord or heavenly armies, it's talking about angelic armies, but not in this case, because Jude— quoting Enoch, and I'm not going to get into the whole thing about the book of Enoch right now, but Jude quoting Enoch lets us know that these are armies of his saints. Now, will there also be angels involved? Is this also going to be the angelic host? I I don't have any doubt. Yes, likely so. But again, I would just stress that really what we're talking about here are the armies of the saints, according to Jude quoting the book of Enoch. And so that's how we know. So again, I I just want to stress, Aaron, it's a very good question. It's the kind of question we should be asking. Um, Preachers and pastors and Bible teachers all the time say things, and it's fair to ask, well, what? How do we know that? Can you show me that from the Scriptures, or is this just an idea? And it's good to be very clear on the difference between those two. So again, thank you, Aaron, for that question. And I'm going to go now to the questions coming in on the live chat. Going to take a look at what's get forward to us from our moderator, Devin. And here we go. Phil, uh, Devin forwards a question from Philip, which says, I appreciate your answer on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. My question is if I feel compelled in prayer to ask for the gift of tongues, how am I to interpret that? I'm trying to discern what's me or God. I've been raised a cessationist, so this is all very new to me. Okay, now, Philip, thank you very much for your question. And, Philip, I I would just say that if you feel prompted or compelled to ask God to give you what the New Testament describes as the gift of tongues, then I think, fair enough, you should ask God to give you that gift— and, and believe that a loving father will give you that gift or perhaps later give you that gift. Because look, one thing that we're assured of is that we are not in control of the gifts of the Spirit. We just can't simply do as we would will, as we would want with the gifts and pretend as if God will just do whatever we want him to do with these gifts of the Spirit. It just doesn't work like that. Hold on with me while I see if I can change something here, get it to where I'm not holding this. Eh, Maybe that'll work. So Philip, I I think we're supposed to pray believingly and we're supposed to pray with the sense that um, we're praying to a good God who cares about us and wants to give us these gifts. Now, Philip, a lot of people would say as well, again, just forgive me while I continue to adjust this camera. I'm trying to get it to where I don't have to hold it, but yet it's not so much in the sun because I don't want it to overheat again. Philip, here's kind of the idea, is that how practically does someone receive the gift of tongues? I don't think that we should expect that God would force you to speak in another language as if a person were possessed by his spirit. And it's like, well, I didn't know what to do and I just started and I had no control over it. That's not how the gifts of the spirit operate. The Bible tells us that the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. In other words, that God works with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, not in a way that overwhelms or possesses us, so to speak, but works within our will, within our volition. And I, I would say that, that there's no one single way that a person receives or experiences the bestowal of this gift, of the gift of tongues. But, but I would just say, look, think of how language happens for us. Right now, of course, I'm speaking in English. Now, this whole process happens so fast and so intuitively that we don't think of it, but we've experienced it when we try to speak other languages. A sound or a word registers in your mind and you choose to speak out that sound or that word as it registers in your mind. So if you ask God to give you the gift of tongues and sounds or words that seem to you to be nonsensical begin to enter into your mind, then, then just believe that's the Holy Spirit working not to overwhelm my faculty of speech and make me speak something, but to simply guide in sort of the normal way that a person might speak. But now it's the gift of tongues, which means that it's a way for me to communicate with God in a way that transcends my, um, my intellect, my understanding, as Paul would put it in First Corinthians. So, Philip, I don't know if that's exactly what you're asking, but I think it's fine to ask for gifts, but we, we should always be allergic to the idea of, of performing the gifts or faking the gifts. That, that, that should be something that seems very offensive to us. Okay, so thank you for that question, Philip. Let me go on to the next question from Anne. Anne asks this question. I don't think we can lose our salvation, but I've been reading some comments regarding Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. My question is, is it possible for someone to lose their salvation? Revelation 3, 5 uh, says this. "...he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments and will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels." And of course, the, the reference that Anne is making there is in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, where it speaks about blotting someone's name out of the book of life. And I've read a lot of commentaries on this. There's a lot of different ways that people try to explain this passage they'll explain the passage like this. Well, um, it's in ancient cities, in the ancient world, when somebody was born, in other words, everybody's name was written in a book of life, and then they were just blotted out when they died. And so it's kind of saying, this is just speaking something universal among mankind. It's not talking about somebody who had their name written in the book of life and then later had it written out or blotted out, erased out. Look, Ant, I I would just put it to you this way. And this is the the important, very practical point, I would say. If people wanna debate the point all day long, whether or not somebody who is a child of God can lose that status and no longer be a child of God and end up going to hell, That's a theological and biblical discussion we can have, but this is what we know. This is just kind of beyond dispute. That there are people who, to our outward appearance, seem to be believers, seem to be saved, and yet they will in the end perish. Now, the whole debate centers around the idea, were they ever true believers to begin with? And, And you know what? How can we answer that? We don't really know by experience. There's not a light on someone's forehead that turns on or turns off according to whether or not they are a believer uh, or not a believer. And so you could see, oh, they have it, they don't have it, they have it, they don't have it. And so this is what we know, is that that people who by all appearance to our observation are genuine Christians, not all of those people will end up going to heaven because if you want to say, well, it's because they were never saved to begin with, or if you want to say it's because they lost it, whatever, we can argue about that all day long. But I think that we need to just be very specific about the fact that by what we can appear, what we can see, and therefore the New Testament gives many, many warnings that people must continue in the faith, that they must persevere in the faith, that they must make it to the end. And if people don't do that, they are in grave danger. So really, I I, I, I prefer to approach the whole situation from that aspect. I, I think it's entirely fair for any one of us to read Revelation chapter three, verse five and say, I don't want my name to be blotted out of the book of life. I'm gonna walk right with God. I'm going to pursue hard after Jesus Christ and not so much to get um, embroiled in the bigger conversation of, well, did I ever have it? Did I not have it? Look, I just know I want my name in the book of life, and so I'm going to follow after Jesus Christ. That kind of perseverance is, I think, what God wants to encourage with us. So I, I hope that's helpful for you there, um, And Let me go on to the next question here from N. N asks... When everything goes wrong all at the same time, can we assume it's a spiritual attack? How do we know when we're going through a spiritual attack? And what a great question. Okay, and and let me say, I'll give a little, look, the many, many problems that we have had and seem to continue to have uh, with our live stream, the technical aspects, the internet, we've spent hundreds of dollars. We've spent so much time. We've spent so much effort trying to eliminate the bad transmission, the buffering, the season that. And then here I am still, despite all of that, I'm parked in a parking lot and I'm doing this from my car because I think I can get a better cell signal right here than the reliability of my internet connection at home. Isn't that crazy? And so we kind of a- ask these questions. Well, is this a spiritual attack? Is it just circumstances? And, and I'm going to give you my take on this. end. I think that it's possible for us to waste a lot of time worrying about whether or not a specific circumstance, a specific adversity, a specific trial, worrying about whether or not that actually comes from god or whether it comes from satan because look no matter where it came from satan wants to use it for his advantage and god wants to use it for his glory you can just know that beyond any doubt so again so why why trouble yourself? Now, sometimes it's obvious this is from the lord this is from the evil one sometimes it's obvious but there are times when it's not obvious we, we just don't really seem to know very well. Is this coming from the Lord? Is this coming from, uh, from Satan? We just don't know. Now, here's what I would insist on, is that in some sense, it doesn't really matter because no matter what, no matter how it came to us, God wants to use it for his glory and Satan wants to use it for his evil purpose. So just determine to the best of your ability God helping me, this trial, this difficulty, these adverse circumstances are gonna be used to the glory of God and not to the benefit of Satan and his kingdom. All right, I hope that's helpful for you. All right, before I go into the next question, let me just remind everybody, here I am in a parking lot in Santa Barbara, California. Actually, this might be technically Goleta. I'm not really sure. It's a place where I can get a good 5G signal. And we are doing this because the internet was out at our home and then it came on, but the internet provider said that it might not last, and so we didn't want to take the chance and I came here. The last time I was in this parking lot doing it, my phone overheated and just all of a sudden the program ended. Let me just say, if for some reason that happens, folks, don't worry about it. I'm not injured a meteor didn't come from the sky and land upon this. It's just having to do with the phone being overheated. I'm going to try to feel the phone right now. Is that? Well, it's feeling kind of warm. I think maybe it just gets kind of warm just from doing this, but it's not very warm. Okay, we, we hope. maybe I should have brought a little fan or something to kind of cool it down. I don't know. There's so many things to think about. Hey, if I have to, I'll start my truck, run a little AC going on, and we'll see what happens with that. Okay, forget about all of that. Here, what we really want to deal with is the questions that you're sending in, and the questions you're sending in are forwarded to me by our moderator, Devin, who does a good job of shutting down weird commentators and weird things that come in on the chat. Thank you very much for that, Devin. Next question comes from our TWR 360 audience. Hey, hello, TWR 360 audience. So pleased that you could join us today TWR is Trans World Radio, and TWR 360 is their great online presence through which they reach many, many people. Okay, so here we are looking right now at our question from Sandy of our TWR 360 audience. Sandy writes, is there a difference between the infilling and the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Um, Sandy, sometimes is the way that I would express it. There is a filling. Certainly, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a filling of the Holy Spirit. But baptism really speaks to be um, overwhelmed. It speaks of being um, immersed in something. It, it's actually, you could quite fairly say, more than just a filling, it's being um, immersed in something. So with that in mind, um, I do believe that there's different kinds of experiences that people have with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes, and this is sort of especially true in the church tradition that I come from, Sometimes it's explained in the form of prepositions, because there's three different prepositions that the New Testament original language uses to sort of describe our relationship with um, the Holy Spirit, and that is the Holy Spirit being with someone, that is, in the conviction of sin, the Holy Spirit being in someone, that is, when someone is born again and receives the Holy Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit being upon someone And that is when someone is overflowing with the Holy Spirit. As Jesus said, rivers of living water coming forth from their innermost being. Now, I believe it's possible to make too big of a distinction, to act as if they're entirely different things. And look, I think people have different experiences with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit's a person. He's not a machine. And there can be somewhat... Uh, different ways that he works in individual lives. What, What I really try to stress with people when we're talking about the filling of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call it, what I try to stress with people is that we should have an ongoing relationship with the Holy Spirit. It isn't just, hey, when I was born again, I received the Spirit, which is true. You did receive the Spirit when you were born again. There's no doubt about that. But to act as if, hey, I received the Holy Spirit when I was born again, I don't have to think about the Holy Spirit and his work in my life ever again in my entire Christian life, I'm born again now. No, that's not the pattern. The pattern we have from the book of Ephesians is simply to say that we should be constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit. And I really think that that's the attitude that we should have. So um, that's the best way that I can answer that question for you there. Sandy from our TWR audience. Okay, I'm going to go on to the next question. And again, you know, I keep feeling the back of my phone. It's kind of warm. I don't think it's too hot. I don't really want to turn my truck on and get the air conditioning going. I don't know what might happen with the sound system. That might be kind of weird. So let me just say this. If for some reason we cut out because of overheating, don't think that something terrible's happened. That's just going to be it for today's program. And we're going to figure out better and better perhaps how we can do these live programs. Uh, remotely from this truck in this place where I live right now. Okay, let me go on to the next question from Polly. Polly asks this question. I watched one of your sermons that talked about the Last Supper. You mentioned the bread phrase change in the script. How about the wine script change? Okay, Paulie, I, I got to say, I don't really understand what this question about. The bread f- phrase change in the script. Okay, I, I think I understand what you're talking about. When Jesus instituted the, the communion, the Last Supper, at the Last Supper, the night he was betrayed, it was a Passover meal with his disciples— And at that Passover meal with his disciples, a Jewish Passover has different elements. Several cups, bread, a piece of meat, you know, in the old traditions, it would be lamb. Oftentimes today it's chicken, bitter herbs, vegetables, things like this. And each aspect of the meal had a ceremonial significance. There was a script, a liturgy, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this, a Haggadah that they would use to go through the meal. This cup represents this. The bread represents this. Now, Jesus went off that script at the Last Supper. No longer was the bread, the bread of affliction that his followers, um, or that the people of Israel would understand from their passover ceremonies now he said that that blood that the bread was his body and it's true for the different cups of wine as well now the reason in my teaching why i did not go through the cups of wine because jesus definitely changed the script on the cup of wine as well because now the wine was the new covenant in his blood. And so that was a different, definitely a different understanding of what the wine represented in the Jewish Passover liturgy. Okay, now, the reason why I didn't go into that in that particular message is it's not entirely clear which cup of wine Jesus reinterpreted. Because there's several, I think, again, I'm doing this off the top of my head. Uh, You could look it up to verify it. But I think there's four ceremonial cups of wine given at Passover. Some people think it was the third cup. Some people think it was the fourth cup. You know, there's different ways. And I don't know if we can ever know with certainty. But that's why I didn't go into it in that particular message. But your question, did he reinterpret? Did he give a new script for the cup of wine? Absolutely, he did because nowhere in the Passover ceremony, liturgy, Haggadah, nowhere in it did it say that that cup of wine was the new covenant in the blood of the Messiah. So yes, he did give a new script. I think that's what you're getting at with your question. So I'm gonna get on the next question, but it just occurs to me, here I am in a parking lot. I see some cars coming in and out and somebody just kind of parked to my side and behind me. And I'm wondering, can they see me in here? And then, and then I'm just thinking, you know, people do this all the time now. What's so unusual about a guy talking to his phone in the cab of his truck? Because people do that all the time with Zoom calls and this and that. So I'm not going to feel self-conscious about it because why should I? Instead, I'm going to take a drink of water and get on to our next question. Next question comes from Tim. And Tim asked this question. Can we still use oil or anointing oil when praying? I'm not familiar with the purpose of this, and I don't understand why Catholics use holy water, but Protestants don't. Tim, very good question. Thank you for asking that. And I would say that, yes, we certainly can use anointing oil. There is at least one specific reference to that in the New Testament, and that's in James chapter 5, where it talks about the elders of the church praying for the sick and anointing them with oil. Now, it is true that in the ancient world, the application of oil was thought to be medicinal in character. So, there may be an aspect of what James is saying uh, to simply communicate, get that person good medical care. But there's also a very rich idea that comes forth from the Old Testament about anointing with oil. Now, practically speaking, how do you anoint somebody with oil? I, I don't know there is any one way. Look, when kings and priests were anointed in the Old Testament, a, a big bunch of oil was actually poured upon their head. We're not usually doing that on the prayer team at church services today. W- what I normally do when I anoint someone with oil is I will just dab a little bit on my thumb, and I will just um, make a motion on their forehead— Sometimes I'll make a cross on their forehead. And I, I'm not trying to, oh, it's a sign of the cross. It's a magic. No, I'm just applying oil to them. That's what oil is. And why not put it in a cross? Why not have it something that at least refers to or speaks to the, um, the work of Jesus on the cross for us? And, and then I pray and I do it because that picture is so rich in the Bible. It's obedient to what some biblical passages say. And oil is emblematic throughout the Scriptures of the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit. It is very important that we don't get superstitious about anointing with oil. It's very important that we don't think that there's something magical about a certain kind of oil. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to be in Israel. And when you go to Israel... In all the shops and stuff you can get oil from the Holy Land anointing oil from the olive oil from the Holy Land sometimes put in a nice little glass flask or you know container sometimes in an olive wood container look folks if you want to do that that's fine that's great it's kind of a nice sentimental thing but it's not like there's any magic or power in that we we need to avoid superstition but we need to carry out the obedience of faith as it's described in the Bible. So I'm happy to anoint people with oil when I pray for them, in particular if they are sick, but really no matter what they is, because it's in the general stream of biblical obedience. It's in line with passages such as that verse in James chapter 5, and it's emblematic of the Holy Spirit. So I I don't make some kind of superstitious deal about it, but it's something that I definitely do. And Tim— you should also feel encouraged in doing that. So I hope that's helpful for you. Okay, we're continuing on. Things seem good so far with our broadcast. I hope this is helpful for you. We haven't gone out yet. Who knows? It could happen soon. I'm going to feel the back of my phone again right now. It's warm, but not overly hot. We're just gonna do this until it stops or until about one o'clock comes around my time. So I'm glad you could join us. Glad you could join us on those live question and answer time. I do enjoy doing these programs despite the technical frustrations that face us from time to time. So let me go into the next question from Bob, who says, happy birthday, David. Well, Bob, that's not a question, but thank you for your birthday wishes. It's true, today is my birthday. And if I could say to a YouTube audience that's also watching live, and then of course there's gonna be at least a few folks who watch this in the recorded version, today, October 6th, 2022, is the day that I turn 60 years of age. I'm no longer in my 50s. And all I can say about turning 60 is, thanks be to the Lord that I've made it this far, That I have such a wonderful family around me uh, that I've enjoyed at least 40 of those 60 years with my wonderful wife, Inga Lil, and with her family and my family and our wonderful children and our grandchildren. And then on top of all that, the ministry that God has given me to do, which I'm very, very thankful for. Look, if you don't know, and if you don't know, I don't blame you for knowing. Why should you know? But the main way that I reach people in this world is with an online Bible commentary. That's available at my website, EnduringWord.com. It's also available on our excellent, absolutely free app that you can get for your iOS phone on the Apple Store or Google Play for an Android device. That also delivers the commentary I have. It's also available on um, Blue Letter Bible, my written commentary. So I seem to reach more people with that written commentary by a pretty large margin than anything else I do. And so if you like the Bible content you get on our YouTube channel, I really, really do recommend to you to go to EnduringWord.com or download our app and see if that Bible commentary isn't going to be helpful for you. Many, many people seem to find it helpful, and not just pastors or Bible teachers or people like that, although they find it helpful too, but everyday Christians seem to find it helpful and uh, meaningful. So thank you for all the birthday wishes. I'm a very blessed man, and I'm looking forward to having a nice dinner with um, two of my three children. One of my children lives out of state but two of my three children and my blessed daughter-in-law and our grandkids, looking forward to that here this evening. Okay, uh, next up is a question from 0161. How important is it to study Old Testament characters and events in today's New Testament church age? Well, 0161, it's very important. Absolutely, it's important. Um, So... We believe what the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. So it's very helpful for us to simply read the Scriptures, to try to understand the Scriptures, including the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, if you think about it, the Bible that... The Apostle Paul, that Jesus Himself, that the disciples, that the Apostle, the Bible that they had was the Old Testament. Now, I, I will say this: they were quite aware that they were bringing forth a new addition, so to speak, to the Scriptures. They they understood that perfectly. We know that by um, some of the passages in the New Testament. So they understood that they were bringing forth what we call today the New Testament, but yet they respected and used and valued the Old Testament um, very much so. So yes, yes, Um, 0161, study those Old Testament characters. Um, Study those Old Testament events. Understand them in the context of God's greater plan, for sure, but understand what the Bible says from Genesis to Revelation. Thanks for that question. Let me go on now to the question from Rock. Um, Do we have an ability to be more righteous than the Old Testament saints since we have the Holy Spirit? All right, um, Rock, I would say that we certainly have the potential for that. Here's one of the benefits under the New Covenant under the New Covenant, every believer is indwelt with the Holy Spirit. That was not true under the Old Covenant. The Holy Spirit filled people in the Old Testament, but only certain people for certain purposes in certain situations. One of the glorious promises we have under the New Covenant, one of the things that makes it truly a new covenant, is that The promise of the Holy Spirit is for all who are part of the new covenant. As Peter quoted, your men servants and your maid servants, your old men and young men, it's it's for everybody who belongs to the new covenant, is promised this indwelling Holy Spirit. And that gives a power, that gives a ability to live and walk in obedience to Jesus Christ that is glorious and should not be slighted. So yes, uh, we have the potential to live godlier, holier lives than the normal Old Testament saint did, because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us. Next question comes from Anne. Anne asks, "Do you think there will be a rapture and Christians won't suffer the Great Tribulation, or will it occur after?" Studying First John two twenty-eight, someone mentioned that we can't shrink in shame if it happens before. First um, John 2.28 says, And now, little children, abide in him that when he appears, you may, may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Well, and I, I would just simply say that it, it's my understanding that the catching away of the church that's described in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians will happen before this final seven-year period that the Bible describes, and that seven-year period includes what we call the Great Tribulation. So th- that's my understanding. Christians understand those things differently. Um, since the days of the early church, there's been different understandings and different explanations of some of these things having to do with the uh, return of Jesus in all its different aspects. But yes, I personally, I do believe that it will happen before this final seven-year period uh, that seven year period that includes the period that we call the Great Tribulation. Um, I, I'm not going to get into it. There's lots of resources on the YouTube channel, on my website, that talk about it, uh, where, where I kind of go through and defend, so to speak, that position. But you can look those up for yourself. Okay, uh, next question comes from Zmraldo Can you explain uh, the alliance in Exodus chapter 24, verse 8? It says this. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you, according to all these words. So, Meraldo, um, I would recommend to you that you go to my commentary on Exodus chapter 24, because I love talking about that passage. So what I'm going to give to you here now is very brief, but I know there's a greater explanation— And also on our YouTube channel, we have my teaching through that passage because we have a video series that goes through the entire book of Exodus. I regard this as one of the more dramatic moments in all of Old Testament history. We're at Mount Sinai when God's people made a covenant with the Lord through the mediation of Moses. And when they agreed to God's terms of the covenant— Then Moses took sacrificial blood and he sprinkled it upon the people. Now, of course, there's a vast crowd present. Not everybody, but I just I just think of the people who receive the actual. I I think of somebody receiving blood drops on their face from the sacrifice. And in the midst of that, saying this is the blood of the covenant. God's going to hold you to this covenant. The blood of sacrifice demonstrates it. So again, um, look up my notes in Exodus chapter twenty-four, uh, or my teaching, as you can find it on the YouTube channel. That that's really how I would express it. There, it it is an important and dramatic moment. Covenant in the Bible is normally sealed by the shedding of blood. If somebody wants to make says there's an exception with that. With the Davidic covenant, some people say yes, some people say no, but for the most part, covenant is sealed in the Bible with the blood of sacrifice, and we find the sealing of the old covenant. You could call it the Mosaic covenant. Some people call it the Sinai covenant. That will be um, th- That was the case back at Mount Sinai, as described in the Book of Exodus. And we'll take another drink of water. and take a look at the next question that has come in. It comes from Chris, and Chris asks, could you help elaborate the importance of the Theotokos, the Virgin Mary, in Christian faith and in prayer? Okay, uh, Chris, Mary deserves significant honor among Christians because God honored her greatly. Listen, of all the women in all the ages who have ever existed, only one of them was to be chosen to be the mother of the Messiah. And that one person, of course, was Mary. And she is honored in the scriptures. We should honor Mary and learn from her. I am quite uncomfortable with some of the Roman Catholic doctrine concerning Mary. I don't think that she should be prayed to. I don't think that she should be venerated in the way that is common among Roman Catholics. I'm even more at odds with the Roman Catholic practice. I know any good Roman Catholic will tell you that we don't worship Mary and we shouldn't worship Mary. We only honor her. We only venerate her. But look, um, if you look at what happens in practice in many Roman Catholic churches and in the lives of Mary is being worshipped, there's really just not much doubt about that. So sometimes I think when you're talking about Roman Catholicism, you have to look at their doctrines, certainly— but there's also the phenomenon of looking at their practice as well. Now, there's also the um, aspect in the Orthodox communions, the Orthodox churches, where Mary is presented as the mother of God. Okay, I understand that phrasing, but I'm not comfortable with it. Because mother of God, seems to overlook the fact that Mary was not the author of the divine nature of Jesus. She's absolutely, in a physical aspect, responsible for the human nature of Jesus. She supplied the egg, and God miraculously fertilized that egg without any kind of normal reproductive process. Okay, we understand that. I, I understand how our orthodox brethren promote the idea of Mary, mother of God, um, but that's not phraseology I would use and that I'm entirely comfortable with. I, I don't think it makes them heretics. It's just, I just don't think it's a helpful way to phrase things. And it's blurring some of the of the aspects of who Jesus is and what his nature is that it's better not to blur. So I, I hope that's helpful for you there, um, Chris. But that that's just kind of my general take. Look, it, it's been commonly said, and there's truth to it, that you know um, Protestants tend to not give enough attention to Mary and Roman Catholics and perhaps our Orthodox brethren tend to give too much attention to Mary. There's probably some truth to both of those statements. Uh, Mika asked this question. Can you please explain what we are saved from? As a new Christian, this is explained to me in so many ways, but I'm confused. Well, Mika, that's a very good question. We're saved from a lot. Okay, the first thing I would say that we are saved from is, and there are specific passages in the New Testament. I wrote a book on the subject of grace called Standing in Grace, and that book um, has a chapter where I deal with what it means to be saved by grace and what we're saved from. So I, I don't recall these specific passages off the top of my head, but the New Testament makes it clear that we are saved from the world, from the flesh, and from the devil. Those are pretty important things to be saved from. We don't want to be under the power of the world, under the power of the flesh, under the power of the devil. So it is a good thing for us to be saved from the world, the flesh, and the devil. But I'll add something else. We are also saved from the righteous penalty of our sin. We are saved, you could say, From the righteous judgment or wrath that god would put upon our sin and of course if we're clinging to our sin then any judgment god puts upon our sin is going to come upon us as well so we are saved from the righteous judgment that we would deserve god's wrath so we are saved from the world the flesh and the devil But one might argue, look, you could debate these things in proportion, that it's even more significant that we are saved from the righteous judgment of God over our sin, the righteous wrath of God. Um, So I hope that's helpful for you, but it is helpful and meaningful for us as believers to consider what we are saved from. All right, everybody, I can't believe it. We're still online. We're going to be going until the top of the hour. And there's been no significant interruption that I could tell. I'm feeling the back of my phone. Oh, it's warm. If for some reason we just blank out, I'm gonna be very pleased that we got 52 and a half minutes in and uh, hopefully we'll make it all the way to the end without the phone overheating, without some unexpected interruption coming, without a SWAT team coming and assaulting the parking lot. I really don't know. Okay, let me continue on here with the next question coming from Carolyn. Carolyn asks this question. When the Apostle Paul told Titus the standard of choosing leaders, was that standard just for churches then, or did it cut across to our time? Caroline, I think it's very much for our time. The principles that Paul spoke of, these principles of the kind of character that a man should have in leadership, uh, these are things that are important as, number one, a, a grid by which to evaluate potential elders, pastors, overseers in the church. Um, but not only that, it should be also sort of an aspirational list. It, it, it's things that God is defining, this is what godly character looks like, So, Caroline, I want you to understand that there is a sense in which that is a list for every man or woman of God. Even those who will never be in some kind of church leadership, they won't be elders, they won't be pastors, they won't be overseers. Okay, fine, but this is God's declaration of what good, solid character looks like, and so it should be of interest to each one of us. So that list is very much for today. I, I don't think that it's a list that requires perfection. Um now obviously if there's a glaring inconsistency, it needs to be dealt with, and, and nobody should should ignore it. But it it's it's a guideline to measure candidates, and it's a list. To challenge existing leaders on. And and of course, if somebody falls significantly enough outside of the description of that, then they should never be a leader, an elder, a pastor, an overseer, or or perhaps um, they should uh, step away from their post. It's a list to take seriously. Okay, let me go on to the next question from MK. What will happen to the people that are saved during the tribulation? Well, MK, um, I'll give you my understanding of this. First of all, many, many of them will be martyred. I think that's just a biblical truth. Many, many of them will be martyred. And the one who survive, I believe that they will receive their resurrection bodies at the glorious return of Jesus. Um, The Bible doesn't give us so much specific information about what happens with those who survive to the end but it does show us that there are many, many people who are martyred out of their faithfulness to Jesus Christ during the Great Tribulation. Um, Paul asks this question. I've always understood Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 to refer to the Messiah's first visit. Um, just recently heard that it's used in a form related to a second coming, which is correct. Okay, so here we go. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, or verse 3, I guess. Um, or no, chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he'll prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you speak will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Well, I know also in here, in that Malachi chapter 3 passage, there's a, or in the prophet Malachi, there's a specific reference to the appearance of Elijah. So he, here's my answer to that, uh, Paul. Uh, do these prophecies in Malachi 3.1, the reference to the coming of Elijah, do they refer to the first coming or the second coming of Jesus? Paul, my answer to that would be yes. I hope I'm not being too flippant when I say that, but yes. And Jesus specifically spoke to that. Now, Jesus understood that Elijah was yet to come, but he said that in a very true sense, John the Baptist fulfilled the office, fulfilled the work and the purpose of Elijah on this earth. So um, we would look at um, John the Baptist as one aspect of the fulfillment, certainly prepared the way, Certainly, he was God's messengers before the coming of the Messiah, but the Bible tells us there will also be a true, a a even more literal fulfillment of that which is to come with the coming of Elijah. So, uh, the answer is yes. There was an aspect of fulfillment in Jesus' first coming. I would say that the true fulfillment awaits for Jesus' second coming. So, I hope that's helpful for you there, Paul. Well, folks— I've been told by Devin that that's our last question for the day. Not that that's the only question to come in. I know every week we get some questions that didn't get answered. We keep a copy of this. Andrea, if you can make a copy of the chat and put it into a document that I can access, we want to be able to look over the questions that we missed and maybe deal with them on a future uh, thing. If you get into the Q&A earlier, you got a better chance of getting your question answered. But I do want to say thank you so much to our audience today. Thank you for the very warm birthday wishes. Maybe next week I'll be doing it for my home studio. Maybe I'll be in this parking lot again because it seemed to go pretty good, uh, even though I don't have access to my PowerPoint and to other displays and as good as lighting, but at least we got to spend an uninterrupted hour together talking about the Bible and the Christian life. Thank you for the very warm birthday wishes. Happy birthday to my sister, Diane. I have a twin sister, and it's her birthday, of course, today too. And uh, very grateful for you, Diane, and for the milestone that we've reached together. So God bless you all. Thank you so much for joining us. And I'm very pleased that you could make it together with us. God willing, and if we live, we will be together with you next Thursday at the same time. God bless you. Thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.